0: This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health.
1: Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Bohr, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Holly Oxhandler. Hey, Holly. Hey. Robert. On today's episode we talk with Dr. Jill Harrington about bereavement, grief, different types of grieving and her book Superhero Grief: The Transformative Power of Loss. But first, Holly, how are you this week?
2: I am doing all right. How are you doing?
1: I Yeah, I'm doing well. I'm uh, I'm excited to be here chatting with you as always mm-hmm. and we Pretty soon in the next couple hours, we'll actually be done with all our interviews for season six, which feels really uh, kind of exciting. Not it is. that, you know, I don't, not that being done with them is, no, is right. you know, I
2: know. that yes. they were
1: bad, yes. but it's yes. just, it feels kind of cool. You yeah. know? And then obviously we enjoyed the summer to step back and we'll talk, we'll talk more about that yeah. as we get there. Um, since we still have a while to go in terms of releasing, but uh, it's cool just to, to have that sense of, you know, maybe one thing one tab closed, at least in, one in recording them. One tab closed. Yeah. I love yeah. it.
2: Yes. No, I'm with you. I, I'm i so, I'm excited to like, you know, once we're all done with all of the episodes, kind of step back and like take a, a deep breath and reflect And I know you and I will get to do that over the summer together at some point when we kind of debrief, but it does feel really good when we can take that step back and just be like, wow, look at these amazing conversations that we have had um, and gotten to record for others to get to hear over the last year. And so I am excited for that. And I'm, I'm proud of us and the good work that we've done this year, my friend. So, but one more, one more episode to, to record. So.
1: Yes, which, yes, one more for us to record as we're recording this intro, the interview right. chunk, but obviously, there's still you know a, a handful left for the listeners, so don't you know tune out right. now, but right, you know, no, right, yeah, they're all they'll be coming out still for I don't know a month and a half ish or something like that. That's so right. Um, yes. yeah, but some great ones in there,
2: um, yeah, so how is how has your week been? What have you been up to? it.
1: Um, it has been good. Uh, I know uh, last time, last one we recorded, super short because it was uh, Brendan was sick and uh, it was Grace' spring break. Mm-hmm. So we're recording this the Monday after that, so a week before it releases. But so I'm reflecting on that week, right? I mean, the time is always a little bit weird right, right, when, we're, when right. we're recording these. But it was it was a good week. It was hectic and swapping off and all of that, like we talked about last time. But there was definitely some some good stuff, some fun stuff, uh, just. Some intentional time with Gray, him and I going and having like a, so like the Tuesday, him and I kind of had a, a Daddy and Gray day, and because we were swapping off who was working, obviously. And so, um, just going, and having adventures, and getting to do stuff that normally maybe there's not time to do, and and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, it was a lot of a lot of good in that week as well, especially being out of it because I like last time when we recorded last intro, I was in the in the midst of it, yes. um, and so I was feeling yeah, kind of the the stress I guess of the the swapping and the unexpected changes and all that but this you know kind of on the back end of it saying yeah there was there was lots of good stuff in there it was hard but you know yeah so some some really sweet memories made made there but yeah what about what about you how how's your week been
2: it's been good, but I'm so glad that, you know, I know that those weeks though, when you're trying to juggle a whole bunch of stuff with the and kids being home and, you know, there is that sweetness and the stress all woven into it. And I'm glad we, we, you know, we're able to have a, a, a shorter window to, to quickly, you know, introduce our great conversation yeah. um, last week, but then now, you know, it's good to find rhythms on the other side of spring break for um, yeah. for everyone so but yeah we're we're doing okay I'm actually up in my office recording this which I think is the first time I've recorded an intro in my office this semester because I've been doing a lot of them from home because of some nearby like construction and it feels good kind of actually being in my office recording this but yeah um yeah. but yeah the last stretch of this semester I mean we are I mean, I know that we probably have lots of listeners who can imagine or are there with either their kids in that last stretch, or maybe they're on faculty somewhere, or I don't know, but that, that last push is, it's always pretty full. And so I'm, I'm feeling some of that. I've got a couple of great opportunities to travel coming up, which is going to be the first time I've been on a plane Um, (laughs) for a long time. So that's coming up, but.
1: Was the last time you were on a plane that no, the November of 2019 when you and I? No, went when to you Indi- and I oh, hung okay. out. Yeah, I
2: know that would be fun, but no, that wasn't the last time. The last time was in January of 2020 when mm. I went to a social work research conference. Gotcha. To present there, so. Uh, Mm. But that's okay. I'm excited to get back out. I'm going to be, and I guess we could probably drop these in the show notes, but I've, I've got a talk that I'm going to be doing with the Lutheran Foundation for the Look Up Conference. That's going to be in early May. And it's all focused on Mm. the intersection of faith and mental health. And Joe Padilla, who is a previous guest of ours, is going to be one of the speakers there as well. So that's fun. And I've got a trip to California coming up with my uh, my research colleagues um, for our spirituality or spiritual and religious competencies project. And then, and then I've also got, I know I'm not traveling for this, but I'm still really looking forward to it. On April 22nd, I'm doing a talk with um, ACPE about the soul of the helper. So I'm, you know, and that'll be virtual. So anybody can, can join that one. So we'll, maybe we the the link for that one in there too, but yeah, yeah, there's, there's stuff on the horizon, but like right now I feel like I'm just taking a deep breath between launching the book and launching my my research survey that we just had a week or yeah. two ago go out and then kind of getting ready for all these things coming up so yeah anyways no, no to Atlanta
1: in there but no I'm hey. so
2: sorry I you know mm-hmm. but maybe this summer we can find a way for our families to get another like ox handler for vo- like photo together that would be fun. yeah yeah I think we yeah. yeah.
1: Well, we'll go ahead and and kind of pivot in. Uh, So here is our interview with Dr. Jill Harrington.
2: All right. Enjoy y'all.
1: Today, we are so excited to be joined by Dr. Jill Harrington. She is an adjunct professor for the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Washington, D.C. campus, as well as a part-time lecturer for Rutgers University School of Social Work. She maintains an active clinical counseling practice in the greater Washington, D.C. area, and she's one of the first published authors on the subject of bereavement in U.S. military families uh, and has been a practicing social worker for over 20 years with a special focus on the intersection of trauma loss and bereavement. Bereavement. Uh, she's published numerous articles and book chapters, but she's also the one of the editors of the new book, or I guess it came out last year: Superhero Grief: The Transformative Power of Loss. Jill, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the show.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Absolutely. Is there anything other than that bio there that our audience should know about you?
0: Oh gosh. No, I think <laughs> I think you've kind of kind of covered it. Um, so I guess we're here today to talk about. The Transformative Power of Loss and the Creation of Superhero Grief, <laughs> a um, a book that really was born out of being, in a way, creatively bold, taking a creatively bold leap in my career, and Dr. Robert Niemeyer, who we all know in the, the field of loss and grief um, as one of the luminaries, uh, scholars and clinicians in our field, and series editor for Routledge's series on death, dying, and bereavement, um, took a creatively bold leap with me and asked me to create this book out of a workshop that was done at the Association for Death Education and Counseling in 2018 mm. in mm. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. Well, I I love it as someone who uh, loves superheroes and superhero movies. Uh, I, most listeners of the show, I think, will know that. But uh, I grabbed a copy right away, I was like, this seems super interesting and love the way that you use mm-hmm. uh, pop culture and things that people can relate to, right, to explain some of the concepts around grief, which maybe can be a, a, a harder topic to discuss sometimes. So uh, I think it's really well done and and love love that kind of blending of worlds is always something that's really cool to see.
0: Well, I really appreciate that because that was really the intent of the book was to really kind of, in a sense, leverage pop culture. Pop culture is sort of a reflection of uh, our times, right? Uh, art and music and uh, the visual arts um, reflect a lot of the culture of our times. And if we could make something like grief, and you know, specifically the grief I'm, kinda, I'm talking about is bereavement, which is grief related to the loss and the death of a loved one, if we can make that more approachable for people to understand or teach or support using pop culture, um, which is these, these themes and these concepts are woven in so much in these superhero narratives, especially Mm -hmm. in the films and, and the, and the comics, the graphic comics and and the origin stories of most of these superheroes. So, you know, our quest to understand our struggle to survive the death of a loved one, as as well as our own, you know, extinction in a way, our own end of life uh, is written throughout these novels, which are very much part of our modern mythology. I mean, novels and stories and films. Mm -hmm. And so if we can make that, if we can use art as an external container for people to be able to relate a little bit about themselves or understand something about themselves it's hard sometimes for us to really just sit with ourselves and do a deep dive on something that's extraordinarily mm-hmm. painful. But if we can see a character in a movie or a film kind of going through a similar struggle and we can relate to them, it can open up an aperture for us to see things about ourselves. And, you know, I think superhero, the superhero stories, superheroes, first of all, they span um, generations I'm here talking to you as I'm not going to reveal my secret identity as a middle-aged woman, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was, I was, I was around during the, the, the campy Batman days. So, yeah. um, <laughs> mm. but, uh, it's definitely spans generations, spans culture, spans countries. You can go from here to, I guess, the North pole or the South pole, and you might find somebody wearing a Superman t-shirt
1: yeah. or a
0: Batman t-shirt mm. or, uh, Captain America t-shirt. So or black Panther. So these stories are extremely relatable and what we do in in mental health care um, we deal with people's tra- you know traumas and stresses and we you know cope we help people cope with some of the most difficult of all life circumstances so if we're able to use strategies to get people to open up about themselves and learn something or support them I think that was really the goal of the book. Mm-hmm.
2: Man, that is so, so good. um i I love hearing you talking about this. Um, you know, I feel like i've I've come a little bit later to appreciate the superhero stories, in part because my uh, my partner is just like, it, I mean, he he is just so in love with all things Marvel and a little bit DC, but, you know, but more mm-hmm. Marvel stuff. Um, but, um, and anyways, I just, I really appreciate, you know, how you are nodding to the way in which art, you know, as you mentioned, holds that container for unpacking and thinking through some of these, these difficult topics. Like, I, I just love the way that you are able to weave those together So you've you've started talking a little bit about, you know, grief and and the the weight of it and just the importance of, you know, finding language for us to be thinking about this topic. I do want to maybe just take like a, a, maybe a half a step back um, just to ask a little bit around like, you know, what is it, um, you know, why is understanding grief so important for us? and. Maybe if you could talk a little bit to why, you know, this topic is so important and meaningful for you to be dedicating so much of your life to understanding and studying this topic.
0: Well, Holly, I would say that um, I'm going to answer a question with a question. (laughs)
2: <laughs> um, I, like, <laughs> <laughs> like a social worker would
0: <laughs> <laughs> why, why shouldn't we be trying to understand gr- uh, bereavement mm-hmm. specifically grief related to bereavement mm-hmm. it yeah. is the the one of the most it first of all it's what unites us all uh, as part of humanity if we're born we're going to die and mm-hmm. those of us around who we love um, what connects us to this world everyone around us we know at some point is going to die And so really, death, loss, and living and surviving loss in our lives is part of our human survival. And it is universally what's going to happen to us all, no matter who we are in this world, no matter what we are in this world. And so even though it's natural, it's as natural to die as it is to be born in our cycle of life, it is the most distressing still. Of all things that happen to us in life. Nobody really wants to lose someone they love. They really don't. I mean, it's, I've been through this so many times with people and in my own life through my own losses. And, you know, if we have a parent, like say, who's suffering or a child, yes, death sometimes comes as a reprieve for suffering. But if we could snap our fingers and bring back that loved one healthy and whole, just like, you know, Wanda did in WandaVision, having those magical powers. Who blames Mm -hmm. her for wanting to do that? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of judgment around grief too. And we can get into that a little bit as well. But you know, learning to survive loss is not just because it's normal and natural. You know, sometimes how we die, the circumstances around how we die, who dies in our lives, it is the most distressing of all life circumstances. And to be able to support people whose worlds are forever changed. And again, whose potential survival could be changed based on who they lose in their life. And also Mm. just having someone die in our lives can also shatter our hearts so profoundly that we know that bereavement has a definite effect on not just our mental health, but our physical health as well. That's why we've studied things like stress cardiomyopathy which is um, an extreme event, which bereavement can be won in those first six weeks um, or more when people can die of actually what they call broken heart syndrome. We see this sort of a, an entree to this um, in um, Avengers Age of Ultron when Wanda, Wanda Maximoff, or, uh, loses her brother, mm-hmm. Quicksilver, and she grabs at her heart immediately the first place people go Mm. they grab at their Mm -hmm. heart yeah and our physical you know our physical well-being because we don't want really want anyone we truly love to die our whole lives we are taught to attach for survival to attach emotionally to attach practically to attach physically and so when we lose people our attachment systems you know attachment our attachment systems are basically formulated a lot in our childhood. And we get, it would be a whole podcast on John Bowlby, but you know, mm-hmm. when we lose those attachment systems that we love, our attachment systems are galvanized to help in a way to protest that loss. And we, we, we lean on what we've learned about attachment and loss early on in childhood. And so we see how attachment, can really be affected to how people also cope with loss. So, my question would be that why wouldn't we want to study um, or put our energy into grief and loss and helping those who are bereaved kind of walk through the forging fire of one of life's you know most expected events could be very unexpected in how people yeah. die. But how? Why would we not want to support? Probably the most devastating of human suffering, which is to lose a loved one yeah
1: mm. yeah yeah that, that makes sense I love the yeah. I love that just the idea of not even oh well, because it seemed interesting, but like how could we not? right? Like we all experience this and it's, you know, in, especially in any type of helping profession, which most of our listeners are in some version of that, but even if you're not right, like Mm -hmm. you will experience loss and grief and so will everybody, you know, and so how could we, how could we not? Right. And so that's a good answer. I like that. Mm
0: -hmm. And, and, you know, it can, it can pose risk for people, you know, Mm -hmm. how, how we, we were taught, you know, some cultures do teach about coping with death, but for the most part, we're very death avoidant and grief avoidant. Yeah. Yeah. And we teach people, yes, it's important to attach to love for both emotional and practical circumstances to survive the, the heavy trials of life, the, the dangers of life. But, you know, especially in our, our kind of death avoidant society, we don't really teach people how on the other end, which is now we have to, in some ways learn to learn to, in a way, detach from people physically but how do we keep them that relationship in our lives? So there's yeah. not a lot of you know parenting around that to young children, or in society. So you know when people and there's a lot of judgment around, um, and we could talk a little bit about it about social norms around grieving mm-hmm. that you know really make folks feel like going through something which is normal and natural can make them feel very uh, labeled or disenfranchised or in a yeah. sense you know dysfunctional is th- some of the words that are used in our modern mental health to describe the grieving process of those who lost a loved one
1: yeah mm. yeah I love that you uh, bring that up as the uh, the newest revised version of the DSM is releasing into the world right now which has a new yes. like extended grief diagnosis which feels, you know, whatever, uh, that could be a whole different conversation perhaps. But, uh, you, you, you mentioned something right there that I think is important. And I wanted to, I wanted to, to hit real quick because I, I do think it's helpful for people because you talked about this idea of the relationship changing as opposed to maybe an old school kind of, okay, you, uh, you know, go through stages of grief, which we've talked about before on the show, not being a particularly good linear thing, but then you like move on at some point, right? Like you get over it or, or something like that, right? And you mentioned right there, just the idea of that relationship changing, which is a very different way of thinking about that. Can you talk real quick about that kind of continuing bonds idea? Because I think that's, that's a really helpful shift for people and does away with some of the shame of like, mm-hmm. if you're still feeling a loss years later, that that's normal, right? That that it's not about just moving on.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, as as death is permanent, so is our relationship with people we love. So grief is always with us, always. Now the intensity mm. of it, you know, how it comes in, in waves through the years, the intensity we think kind of and sometimes tends to abate over time, but then tends to return like a surging storm um, mm. with loss reminders or anniversaries or moving through developmental phases. Uh, You know, when you lose somebody, anybody, but when you particularly lose somebody in your life who's young, you don't only lose the past and the present, you also lose a lot of future hopes and dreams. And so moving through those years without that person, or as one of my clients told me, you know, my timeline after the death of her son by suicide at 20, very unexpectedly and very horrifically, uh, my whole universe has been altered. Uh-huh. And I'm uh, moving through a timeline which I have had no picture of. But so back in the day, really quick, um, you know, F- Sigmund Freud was one of the first to really study uh, melancholia and mourning, which we know is loss, grief, and bereavement. And back during the day, one of the ways that you could do grief work was to cut off your relationship with the deceased. Freud said that, you know, you basically, you had to move through this process very quickly, and at a certain point, you then had to bury the deceased, both metaphorically, physically, emotionally, to really be able to do the work of grief, which is kind of ironic because Freud lost his um, his daughter, uh, I think at a very young age, and had written letters to her for 30 years. Um, and this is a practice we often see that we use with grieving with those who are bereaved is... Um, to continue that bond with your loved one. You don't have to stop the conversation. And letter writing mm. is a strategy that we often use in grief counseling and grief therapy, talking to your 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 loved one, maybe doing activities that um, could honor honor your loved one's memory to continue that bond. So a group of researchers had, headed by class in the 1960s said, this is kind of doing something like, You know, it's just interesting because Freud himself was doing what felt natural, which was writing these letters to his daughter, but yet telling clients that, you know, or patients that you have to completely stop a relationship after a year. And that's Hmm. where some of these social norms, these very um, Eurocentric coming from sort of the white middle class or upper class norms. I mean, that's who Freud kind of uh, studied and also treated, were then put onto labeled and prescribed basically and has become the social norm of the day and kind of Kubler-Ross who started the dialogue we can have a whole conversation on that but then came a formula for how you have to grieve so you you can do it in these prescribed linear stages and then after about a year or so You know, close the book on that person. And if you ever think about them again, uh, there's something really dysfunctional with you. So, Klaas and his colleagues came up with this in the 1960s called continuing bonds theory. And we see this really woven throughout the superhero, both of the universes and the stories. I mean, we see this as, you know, Batman continuing a bond with his parents or Bruce Wayne, who, you know, tomato, tomato. (laughs) Spoilers (laughs) (laughs) that Bruce Wayne
1: is Batman, I guess, right?
0: Yeah. you know we see this as really he honors and he has a continued bond with his his family, particularly his father, his mother and father, but particularly the work of Thomas Wayne by you know really taking care of Gotham and looking out for justice and philanthropy and um we see this with Tony Stark as well after the the deaths of both of his parents. Of really taking stark industries and turning it around sort of for the good using the technology that his father we wind up, you know, seeing later on. And it's so interesting that in the the, the last two movies, uh, Infinity War and Endgame, we have Tony having that healing, continued conversation with his father that you kind of see throughout all the the Iron Man movies, him having this conversation, sort of in a way repairing his that that relationship with his father that had some kind of unfinished business to it when his father died. So we do this work with our clients. Um, A lot of my clients that have unfinished business with their loved ones that, you know, sudden death can bring or conflict can bring or just um, things in relationships can bring and can be a, a, a layer in their grieving process that people maybe need to work on for themselves. I mean, they don't come into counseling because they're being told to, although sometimes people are dragged in but uh, by a family member, but they come because they want to work on something and that sometimes, you know, working through unfinished business. So we lean on that relationship, that continuing bond with the person they loved and lost. And sometimes this could be through dialogues, letter writing, chair work, but If we love people, think about it. We're never going to just, quote unquote, let them go or get over it. Sure, we may move forward. We carry those people with us, though. Isn't that what a relationship is about? So death Mm -hmm. ends. Mm -hmm. Death ends. Death may end a life in terms of the physical life, but the everlasting impression, that relationship never dies. It just changes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I had a, I had a grad school professor who, uh, she drew this parallel of, I guess in physics, nope, you know, if a physics person is listening, don't, you know, send me an angry email. But the idea that when two, uh, you know, atoms or molecules or whatever, right, when two things come into contact, they both are changed forever. Like they both, it's just how it kind of works um, from their interaction. And so that idea of people, right, that, it's, it can't, you just don't go back to normal, right? Like your contact with someone has changed you. And that's just how relationships work and people work because you have interacted. Mm -hmm. And so when you lose that, it does matter. And it doesn't, you know, oh, I'll just go back to normal after a period of Mm -hmm. time or, you know, whatever normal is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that.
0: Yeah. And Freud's, to your point, uh, Robert, you know, Freud's grief work said not only did you have to cut off that relationship with the deceased, but you were expected to be the same person you were pre-loss. So isn't that, you know, mm-hmm. when we have a relationship with somebody and they die, you know, that the struggle to survive that experience changes us, not yeah. all in negative ways. I mean, the, the book does address transformative grief and mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. aspects of post-traumatic growth, but it's in the context of that despair that we can, discover things about ourselves but when we love somebody and we lose them we're forever changed uh for better or for worse sometimes yeah
2: yeah, yeah. i i yeah. really appreciate naming that cuz i think you know i i do think you're right sometimes even culturally we just think that we'll go back to you know who we were before um and you're right we are changed and and we have to make room for that change and allow it and yeah. I just really appreciate you naming all of that.
0: Well, I think because of those social rules, Holly, I often have clients that will come in and, and they'll say it themselves. They'll they Nobody likes to be in pain, especially the excruciating, invisible pain of grief mm. and profound, profound loss, profound loss that could break us open and shatter us, shattering loss. There are some losses, mm. um, again, and that's a whole another conversation about what can influence uh, our grief. But, you know, my clients will often through the years, uh, even experiences that I've been through, through my own losses in life, you know, notice that there are changes. But we judge because of these social rules and because of these norms that have been pervasive for decades you look at the media, the media is still talking about the five stages of grief. If you read anything like when COVID came out, Mm -hmm. it was happening, like all the five stages of grief Mm -hmm. were coming out and I'm screaming, Hey, that's so outdated, (laughs) but still it's (laughs) popular and it's a formula, (laughs) you know, because people are scared of what they don't understand. So they want certainty. So they grab onto something that gives you a certain pathway, but you know, you know, so, um, back to that point is just, uh, you know, we, we, our clients, my clients sometimes will say, they don't want to be in that kind of pain. And they will rush themselves, you know, to these timelines, and they feel very different. And I'll say to them, I'll just sort of normalize, educate and validate and ask them questions like, why wouldn't you feel any different, like different isn't bad. And once they sometimes hear that, that life has changed, and different isn't, oh, we know, different can be bad. But it's learning in some ways to relearn this whole world, uh, the whole world around you and learning, relearning yourself in a new world of loss.
1: Yeah. 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 So in this book, you talk about the, or, the, or I guess I say you, you're one of the editors of this book. So I want to be really clear that all the chapters <laughs> have different <laughs> authors. Uh, I'm used to, you know, when we have people, they wrote yeah. most of it. So um, just to clarify, but- there's there's kind of these eight types of grief, and uh, obviously we don't have time to talk about all eight, so I thought maybe you know if you pick one that you think would Oof. be particularly relevant, I could pick one, Holly could pick one. Before mm-hmm. we get to those, though, I do want to real quickly uh, touch on uh, – there's a, a chunk about grieving styles, and I think that's yeah. important because – as you're talking about the kind of how we expect each other to grieve or maybe even how we expect ourselves to grieve, I think those grieving styles could be helpful just to say, hey, there's different people do this differently, right? And so do you like, would you be willing to the intuitive instrumental blended dissonant? Would you be willing to give kind of a quick uh, synopsis of those or?
0: Sure, I can give it my best shot. So um, Dr. Ken Doka and Terry Martin, are the ones in 2010 who basically came up with the concept of why are we genderizing grief? And we would often see this mm. with folks say, oh, you, or you could come in and say, oh, my, my father's grieving like a man, like a woman, or my, my mom's grieving like a man. and I just can't understand it. Or people who would say, oh, this person is grieving like a man. Why are we putting gender labels on grief? And uh, Doctors Martin and Doka really came up with this concept about, you know, People, it doesn't matter what gender or non-gender people identify with. There are really styles around which people, ways people grieve. Um, intuitive grieving styles are people who are much more emotional, um, who are really more in that uh, emotional space. And I could even think about this in, in my own family where my grandfather, who was first generation Italian-American, he was very emotionally expressive. And so he would probably fit into Mm. more of an intuitive grieving style. And those are folks who really need, um, they they look for the social support, the emotional support, talk therapy often works very well with them, connectedness, social groups around talking about their loss, um, expressing their loss emotionally emotionally. Then you have instrumental grievers. Instrumental grievers tend to be those people that kind of live in more in the practical realm. They would be probably more in that cognitive space. You know, I often kid around, but I have family members here that are engineers. I'm going to stereotype them, but they are probably more instrumental grievers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are, those are the folks who want, um, I'll use workbook workbooks with, maybe um Folks who want to think their way through their grief, although sometimes you have to pull them a little bit more to the emotional world. But, you know, instrumental grievers see things sometimes more practically. It could be that you see, and I'll just use a father as an example a father who is taking care of all the funeral arrangements for their child and moving personal property and taking care of wills or taking care of practical matters. And that's really sometimes their form of love and grief for their, for their child that they've lost, or maybe in the years to come, they, you know, run, do activities. Uh, They do activities. I often say sometimes we'll do activity based nature retreats with people who are more instrumental grievers. And so sometimes they're a little bit more active in their grief and their they're using more of that cognitive side of their brain. Mm. Um, and that's just who they are as people. And it doesn't matter if it's a, a man or a woman or someone who's, you know, gender nonspecific, so or um, gender binary and non-binary. So, you know, it really speaks to the nature of styles versus um, putting gender norms on grief. But most people, yeah. as um, Doka and Martin say, um, have a blend have a blend of both instrumental and intuitive. Sometimes people could be a little bit more one or than the other. And so we kind of tailor our approaches and our practices and our techniques and our supports around that instead of just saying, Hey, you're a woman. So you're, of course, you're going to be emotional. want to talk about this yeah. or, Hey, you're, you're a man and, and you're going to, you're going to want to um, not talk about this, or you're going to want to just do activities. So um, that's really what, that's really what grieving styles. I hope I gave that yeah. justice. Uh, I say justice because <laughs> they, they wrote a <laughs> Martin and Doka looked at a uh, Batman, uh, you know, yeah. Mr. Justice, uh, looking for justice. They used Batman and they, they called him a dissonant. He had a dissonant grieving style, which is, uh, you know, someone who basically, um, a dissonant griever is really an avoidant griever. So, um, mm. they had an interesting take. I don't want to give away too much of, uh, of the chapter, but, um, you know, they did a a chapter on Batman on the couch, looking at through grieving styles and educating about grieving styles.
2: This is, but this is so helpful though, like having these different grieving styles and being able to normalize them and not like you were saying, like not, you know, put them in boxes or say there's a certain type of grieving that we should be all engaged in. And, you know, and these give room for cultural differences, uh, that are woven into grief and. I just really, I'm glad that Robert asked about these grieving styles and I'm really grateful for how you elevated each of these. Holly, you wouldn't,
0: yeah, you wouldn't, the, the the amount of judgment and I'm going to particularly pick out for a person who identifies as a woman, Hmm. women who don't cry in their grief are so judged, Hmm. (laughs) so judged. How do you know that person may not be more of an instrumental griever? Some people don't yeah. cry. Yeah. I'll often ask the question. It doesn't mean they're not grieving. Everyone right. has their own style. Yes. yes. Yeah.
1: And That's I would, so I would imagine potentially the, the opposite, right? So uh, someone who identifies as a man, right? The like, if they are kind of have more of that emotional expression, right? I mean, you can get into cultural things of you know, man up, or just you know, do what you need to do, or you know, all mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Where a lot that, of labeling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I even I was thinking, as you talked about, because our relationships with different people are different, that maybe this isn't yeah. like, you know, if if I've lost two people within a year, like maybe because my relationship with those two people is different, that my grieving style is different, maybe even right, like, it doesn't even, you know, is that does that do you find that to be true? Or is it typically like, yeah, people are kind of one, one of these most of the time?
0: Um, That's, that's a difficult question. I think that, um, it really depends on, I mean, if you had cumulative loss, we can all respond differently. Um, but it depends how, in you know, how much we are one or the other. Martin and Doka say people are usually a combination of a little bit of both. Yeah. yeah. It'd be hard for me to answer to kind of like just armchair quarterback that question. Yeah,
1: yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I just, you know, if someone was listening and said, oh, I have to fit within Mm -hmm. one of these boxes, right? Maybe, you say, well, you know, there's context and where you are in life. You don't
0: even have to fit in one of those boxes when it comes to different losses for yourself. I mean, you can, (laughs) you know, there's different influencing Mm -hmm. factors. And just because your personality may be a little bit more instrumental, it doesn't mean some things that, and, and I have to say for folks who are, I have seen profound loss crack them open to the point where they start second guessing themselves because they're having a lot of these intuitive emotional responses and it be- it feels it feels like it's not natural for them so it adds another layer of distress to their process
1: yeah well, uh, like I mentioned, there are the these eight types of grief in uh, throughout the book, and like I said, we don't have time to go uh, through all eight. So people can definitely okay. go check up the book if they want kind of in depth on all those. But if we kind of pick, you know, a handful to talk about one, two, three. However, you know, kind of depends on the the time. I would love to hear about I think cumulative and collective grief. Because I think COVID and all that, right? Like, I think there's an interesting kind of relevancy there. So um, could you talk, you know, just a a few minutes maybe about that? And then uh, maybe Holly will pick one and and you can try and pick one?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, um, these, uh, so when I watch these movies, and I'll I'll try to be quick on this, all these concepts kind of jump out at me. I feel like, you know, Tony Stark uh, as Iron Man when he's wearing his helmet and these things that Friday pops out at him you know, uh, I just have these visions that pop out when I'm watching these films of these theories and concepts that are kind of married together. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's continuing bonds. Oh my gosh, that looks like cum- cumulative and collective grief. That's what they're talking about. And so um, the whole concept, Mark, one of my colleagues, Mark Des- Desait-Aubon, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Mark, he really wrote about the concept in the book. Um, you know, cumulative and collective grief is... You know, it can include things like a worldwide pandemic, multiple losses from crime or war, motor vehicle accidents, multiple fatalities, a series of, of multiple deaths, a variety of causes over a short period of time. These collective losses impact us. And this impact differs from that of a single loss grief. And I have to say, you know, with cumulative and collective losses, it's grief that piles up so much that you can't process one one event or person um, that it overwhelms us and shuts us down. And so that's the real simple answer to cumulative grief. It's an accumulation of grief over a short period of time in the sense that we need time to really allow ourselves to process loss because loss spurs on change. And Mm -hmm. Change requires us to adapt. That loss requires us to adapt to that change. And so when we have so many changes and losses, especially losses that that affect us physically and emotionally and can devastate us and bring us down to our knees and deplete us from our psychological and physical and spiritual energy, when we don't have time to kind of process one and then another and then another, yeah. It is really, um, it's really difficult uh, for the, the, the human being to not feel like they are just completely so overwhelmed that they become frozen. Hmm. It's a lot to process and unpack all at once. So collective losses deal more with, uh, like we saw with COVID, uh, we are all going through sort of loss together collectively as a world. So, there's all these different social changes. There's, um, you know, we often see this sometimes um, when there's been mass casualty accidents. The horrors uh, in the, the, the massacres in Orlando several years ago, there was a collective grief, not only that impacted the families, we saw sort of from a social work perspective a micro, macro, and mezzo mm. layering effect. You know, even a, a person's single death can not only affect the people closest to them, but their community, their community at large. But we saw how the rippling effects of um, that kind of hate and, and death rippled not just throughout how it affected the individuals, but affected the community and affected our nation and the world. In a sense though, some of those, some of those tragedies also bring a collective sense of loss to a group of people who were, they can also then provide, hopefully, mutual support to one another. I had a a good friend who lost her uh, husband in a a plane accident in the Air Force. And I'll never forget what she said to me once was, uh, you know, um, because her husband had died with six other people on the plane. And she said, I don't know what it would have been like for me if he had just died by himself. Like, I had a community of six other people to go through. Not that we, she goes, not that I would ever want this to happen to anybody, but collectively in their losses, these collective losses, they also found mutual support through one another. And that's um, why a lot of people, social support groups um, that we see are formed to really bring peers together, that through their collective losses, they can find you know, support through one another. They can find people who have not necessarily been in the exact same boat as them, but as Yalom would say, who can validate and provide pure support to one another because they have that same in the boat experience. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: That's so good.
0: And we see this in, you know, Avengers, uh, infinity Wars. Uh, we see it is, it is a heavy movie, if you look at it through the lens of loss grief and bereavement it is a very heavy movie yeah. to actually if you're not looking at it through a, just say an entertainment value if you're looking mm-hmm. about what they're really saying with a snap you know half the universe disappears and yeah. and for me watching actually the artistry and how people disappear how we evaporate it, it it's kind of powerful if you really really take it in about what it actually means and you know there is just this overwhelming sense of profound cumulative and collective loss that is just so heavy and we see that in the next film and spoiler alert here as they're trying to really rebuild a world in the wake of the loss of half the universe and everyone feeling this collective sense of grief and we've been feeling that you know, that happened here in, in the States, um, you know, with 9-11, our world definitely changed. There was a sense of collective and, and cumulative loss and grief. The world changed after And we've seen the world change again now with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, yeah. um, not just loss of, I mean, we've had not just loss of our social worlds, but we've had some really profound loss of lives, who people who've been taken from us. Um, and you know, losses and losses in all of our realms of being. And so we are now, hopefully knock on what I want to speak to you soon, starting to sort of emerge out of this really changed world with some multiple losses, some people with a lot of multiple losses, yeah. they're, yeah. they're yeah. processing and adjusting to and, and maybe life has taken on new meaning in a lot of different directions for people.
2: Yeah, I really appreciate how you um, especially unpacked and discussed cumulative grief and thinking about that, you know, it's, it just keeps piling on top and there's just no room to like move through or process any of these losses um, because you know, I I mean, I think of the image of like, you know, waves just like crashing. It's like, you can't even catch a breath before the next one comes. And so I think that's really important for us to be thinking about. And I know that we, you know, I know that we're coming up to the hour, so I want to be mindful of time, but I, as you were just kind of talking about loss, I I would love if you wouldn't mind just kind of briefly, talking about ambiguous loss, because I think that's relevant to some of what you were just saying and um, is relevant to, you know, as we are kind of coming out-ish from the last couple of years. And there have probably been a lot of ambiguous losses that we've experienced too over the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you mind like briefly kind of touching on, on that for our guests?
0: Sure. My good colleague, Corey Buslari, uh, who teaches out at the University of uh, San Francisco, uh, wrote about magneto and ambiguous losses. And, you know, ambiguous loss was a term that was coined by Pauline Pauline Boss in the 1970s, while she was interviewing uh, the wives of pilots de-missing in action in Vietnam and Cambodia. And an ambiguous loss is sort of this unresolved loss that complicates and confuses relationships and she said prevents closure, which is word, a word some of us in in the grief and loss world, um, some of us subscribe to, some of us don't. But, you know, there's the, the physical absence of the person, but the psychological presence is, you know, kind of continually always there. And the loved one is missing, um, but kept, you know, very psychologically present and at the forefront. Um, so what does that really mean? So what does that mean? Unpack that. Ambiguous losses, we've, we saw this... Um, you know, with, I'll use both 9-11 and COVID-19 and, uh, um, and, you know, the boss who studied the folks from the lost loved ones in the Vietnam war or missing in action or never recovered. You know, when someone just disappears, um, that's an example of a, an a, ambiguous loss. I remember, um, in New York and I was living there at the time I'm from there. And, um, in the wake of 9/11, we saw a lot of family members who were, you know, walking around for weeks and if not even months, trying to um, to see if one of their loved ones had survived. Um, we've seen this with COVID-19. I can actually mm-hmm. talk about this personally. One of the authors in our book, the very first chapter, one of my very good mentors and um, senior colleague. Dr. Howard Winneker, who wrote in this book, uh, one of the fir- both of the first two chapters in it, died very suddenly of COVID nineteen in two thousand and twenty. Hmm. So a very mild case that turned into a very severe case very, very quickly, oh, and the fact that he gosh. died very suddenly, and um, he was a very close friend of mine and colleague, and he lived in North Carolina. And basically, um, he had to be cremated and buried pretty quickly. Mm. And it's been mm. now, it will be a year and a half since he's died. And, you know, I helped to, with his funeral arrangements with some of his family, and we all honored him at ADEC. But there's this pervasive sense that he just disappeared. Yeah. And so it's hard to really, yeah. with ambiguous loss, these are losses that can be intangible, intangibly ambiguous, but also sometimes when people just disappear, you know, we are very much programmed as human beings that we tend to, the reason why every language, every culture has a hello and goodbye is because that's, that's how people enter and leave our world. We say hello and goodbye. If you're in a conversation, you often just don't get up and leave, you know, you typically say goodbye. And um, mm. it could, when someone dies very suddenly and there's um, very little ability to either say goodbye or they disappear, um, that could lead to a sense of really this ambiguous sense of loss. Like they're not really gone. And yeah. so that, that, that grief is very, very hard to process. It, it stays with us, yeah. can stay with us indefinitely. So I hope that gave justice to um, Dr. Buslari's work. But if you want to hear a little bit more further, read the chapter on Magneto and ambiguous losses. Yeah. Mm. She describes them beautifully.
1: Yeah, and I think you did a great job explaining that there. Yeah. Like I mentioned, there's there's eight different types uh, in the book that are talked about as well as a bunch of other things related to the grieving styles and, and stuff like that, post-traumatic growth types of things as well. So we'll definitely say uh, to the listeners, you can go grab a copy of that and there's it really leans into the superhero aspects as well. So if that's interesting to you. You can also connect with Dr. Harrington on Facebook or Twitter looking for su- at superhero grief. You can learn more about that at superhero grief.com or buy this book, Superhero Grief, The Transformative Power of Loss, wherever you buy books. You can connect with Holly at hollyoxhandler.com or on any social media at Hollyoxhandler. Connect with me at Robert Vore.com or on any social media at Robert Vore. Jill, thank you so much for joining us today. Yes, Do you have any you. closing thoughts for our listeners?
0: Um, the Closing thoughts are that uh, I would say it's really important. Part of the reason I also helped to lead and create the book was that we need to create a more grief-informed society because we have these social stigmas, social norms, uh, outdated theories and concepts. Uh, we may be trying to help, be helpful, even in the counseling field, and, mm. um, but we may be actually be doing a little bit more harm than we know. So I think it's important um, for all of us to kind of because in our lives we will come across, either personally or professionally, those who are grieving is to help really understand, try to understand the, the multiple dimensions uh, of grief and loss. And so we can become a, create more, a little bit more of a justice league of grief to help support the bereaved and on, on this changed world that they have that, and hopefully support them in their own transformative process. Thanks for listening to the CXMH Podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at cxmhpodcast at gmail.com.